0: I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is Afterglow, a mountain storytelling podcast. In episode 6, we sit down with the highly accomplished ultra-running personality, Rory Bozio. Rory's ascension in the ultra-running world began in 2013 at what is arguably the most difficult mountain ultra in the world, the French classic Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc. It was here that a relatively unknown runner from Tahoe City, California, smashed the women's record by over two hours and became the first female to ever place in the overall top 10. To silence any doubters, she returned for good measure the following year to win again, becoming the first woman to ever win back-to-back UTMBs. And while Rory has finished in second place at the famous Western States 100-mile endurance run, has run across the French island of Corsica, and won numerous 50-mile races across the globe, she is a person who is cut from a different cloth. She runs solely because she loves it, and is a free spirit with a rarely seen zest for life. As you might guess, Rory doesn't follow carefully designed training and nutrition plans, but moves in the mountains to her own rhythm. On race day, Rory decorates her outfits with glitter and puff paint and can usually be found singing dirty limerick-like tunes at aid station stops. She's a fun-loving person who was a joy to chat with. So you're a hometown hero. Us, you're born in Tahoe City. Mm.
1: Born in Tahoe City. I don't know about that hometown here. Born, born in Reno, actually. At the hospital. St. Mary's, yep. Yeah. Um, but grew up in Tahoe City and haven't really left the area too much. Yeah, it's hard to leave.
0: Yeah, it has a pullback effect.
1: It does. It was funny when I was in high school, a lot of my friends, you know, typical teenage thing, just wanting to get away from the place you live. And eventually, most of them, at least the ones who really loved the mountains, migrated back even before their college years were over, you know, and finished out at UNR. That was pretty typical of a few of my friends. Yeah, right. I didn't go too far. I went to Davis for the exact purpose that I could drive home, like, you know. And play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 There's no perfect place to live, but Tahoe has a lot of good things going for it. And I just think in the U.S., I would think, well, where else would I live? I don't know. That would be better. Everywhere has pros and cons, but these ones.
0: We're pretty pretty lucky. Yeah. And your what was your childhood like?
1: It was great. It was kind of the typical mountain Tahoe childhood, I think, from like what I saw how a lot of my other friends grew up is we were just really into being outside all the time. You know, it was one of those my mom, you know, I wouldn't go back in the house till it was dark or dinner time. Um I grew up like right in Tahoe City behind the golf course, and it was this neighborhood filled with other kids kind of all around my age. And so we just had this group of little kids that would just run roughshod around the neighborhood playing. And we grew up, there was a cemetery in our neighborhood. And now I think about, as an adult, what we did as kids just playing around on graves (laughs) and things so normal. (laughs) But um, uh, it was great. We were, I was, um, my family was, you know, really big into skiing and bike riding and hiking And I grew up playing soccer and kind of just doing all the things outdoors.
0: Right. Yeah. And your mom was a runner and a Nordic skier, right?
1: Yeah. My mom's, she's still, I've like only just the past couple of years finally been able to surpass her sometimes, but sometimes she can still turn it on and I'll be like, oh, she's right. She's breathing down my neck. Uh, yeah, she was a really good runner and her first love though is cross country skiing. She loves it. She like learned how to skate from, um, our friend mark ewing mm-hmm. who was like the first guy to bring skate skiing to the meadow and squaw right and i think he taught her how to skate ski and then she was just hooked yeah. she doesn't downhill ski So like when i was little and i was learning how to downhill ski she would pull me uphill behind like as she was skating up and then she would try and kind of like sidestep
0: down and i would ski down right yeah um, do you have siblings?
1: I do not have any
0: siblings. Only only kid. Only child. Nice. Yeah,
1: I was kind of my godfather. Godmother's family plays a big role in my life, and mm-hmm. they have two daughters who are kind of like my um, adopted sisters, or they adopted me as their like little kid sister. Yeah,
0: and your mom still lives locally. Yeah, she yeah. lives
1: up on Donner Summit. Yeah, she loves it up there. Right. Can't get enough of that snow.
0: Yeah, and she you guys are that. tight.
1: Yeah, we're really yeah. We go hiking and running, and she still she cross country skis more than anybody I know. Every day, she's out there. She yeah. probably goes six or seven days a week.
0: Who were your mentors growing up?
1: I guess mostly just actually just the people in my everyday life because in Tahoe, so many so, you know people live here because of the lifestyle. So it seems like every other parent or you know person you meet in the community is just living the life that you would like to live when you get older. It's like having this really good work play balance where you know tahoe is limited in the job opportunities um but a lot of people figure out how to make it work even though it can be hard but then they really treasure and cherish their days off and make the most of them and i think growing up seeing you know my mom and her friends do that and also have kids and all of this and then still have this really great life where they're incorporating their free time in the outdoors and in the mountains and just really living those days Um, as I would want to live, you know. And so, um, you know, besides my parents, like a lot of my parents' friends, really, those were my mentors. And I grew up um, when I was about... In middle school we moved next door to laura delorier laura Mm -hmm. vaughn the Deloria's two awesome people eric obviously and his brother rob are like these storied big mountain skiers you know really pioneers and eric is married to laura who in the ultra world will know her as laura vaughn in the 90s she was doing western states and hard rock and wasatch you know before it was really a big sport and she was one of, she still, she amazes me with her ability to kind of just off the couch and go, you know? I mean, like training for a hundred miles is a big undertaking, but I don't know if she had just developed this base, you know, over years and years of doing it. And she has obviously a very high pain threshold, but I mean, she, she like ran the Wasatch not too long after giving birth right. type of thing. It was like breastfeeding along the way. She's just tough as nails. Right. Um. So I grew up next door to her. And my mom and I both thought that Laura was nuts for doing the 100 mile races. It was like, ah, why would you want to do that? But I loved I loved running. I ran cross country in high school and middle school and really liked it. And we would go running with Laura just like on our backyard runs up to Page Meadows or whatever. And she just made it seem like no big deal to like do the longer stuff and really doable and it sounded pretty cool so eventually that kind of like warned in my head is oh may this be an idea yeah and yeah. she's your godmother is that <laughs> no, no no next door neighbor my godmother is a woman named dizzy or that's what we call her she's hilarious whenever i i have all these funny little songs and stuff that i've learned over the years and you You've know nine, nine out of ten of them are from her right yeah okay yeah okay. yeah so yeah. we'd like grow up hiking and we'd be hiking somewhere and all of a sudden you hear her voice in the back, singing Stan, Stan, the Lavatory Man, or <laughs> something more inappropriate. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah.
0: Laura has her own amazing story of yeah. life and, you know, struggle and kids and success. Right. But Incredible. Um, I actually, as does Eric, two falls ago, I actually sat on a porch with Eric and his dad at Bolton Ski Resort, which oh, really? they manage yeah. Uh, yeah. and had owned and then rebought amazing salt to the earth people. Oh, that must have been really cool. It was very cool. I've never hung out with Eric in Tahoe. I mean, of course, we know each other, but to hang out with him in Vermont with his dad was pretty special. Yeah, that's really cool. And I kind of, I'm always interested in mentors because somewhere along the line, I read a comment that this concept of we're an amalgamation of all the influences and experiences we've had in our life, and we bring that to everything in our lives, work, play relationships, everything, what does that concept mean to you?
1: That's so funny because I was just thinking I was going to mention somebody else who, I don't know if I would call him a mentor, but he plays a really big, he's a dear friend of mine who plays a really big part of my life and um, is also one of my favorite like mountain buddies, but when we go out, Tav, straight, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and so when we go out in the mountains and we're just out running or skiing for you know hours and hours on end, he... We'll get into all of these uh, kind of theoretical conversations or philosophical conversations about his take on life and things. And he's really taught me a lot over the past few years. But he also has this kind of theory about, as a person, how you should commit yourself to others. I don't know if I'm explaining this right, but like you should really be... Invested in like five people, let's say, mm-hmm. in your life, and that kind of goes back to like what you were saying. It's like this amalgamation, and there are people in your life that have different influences. I would say Tav has definitely been a big influence. Yeah, he's just such a upbeat, positive guy. But um, it's an understatement. There's, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of like thought and effort that he actually puts into that and mm-hmm. into his attitude, and it's really interesting to talk to him and get a good perspective on things. Yeah because he can turn a frown upside down.
0: Yeah. He's good. (laughs) Yeah. I'd like to have what he is on, because he is just, like, wired for sound.
1: Where are you breathing? Yeah. Yeah. He comes
0: in the shop, and I'll spend an hour with him, and he's just bouncing off the walls, looking at this, and then looking at something totally different, and he's just a wonderful person. Yeah, wonderful. But you've spoken openly, you know, about your father's struggles Mm -hmm. with PTSD from, Mm -hmm. sounds like, Vietnam. Yeah. Was that uh, pronounced in your childhood growing up?
1: Yeah, uh, not for the first like 10 or so years, but then he hit just like like a lot of them do, something snapped, and he I don't know if he's ever really come back from that. And back then, that would have been like, you know, sometime in the 90s, PTSD was still, it, I mean, it was definitely in the atmosphere, but um, there was still so much research that needed to be you know done about it, and there was still so much stigma attached to it, and I think there still is. It's definitely come a long way. I think having something, someone close to you go through something like that, it obviously creates a mix of emotions, especially when you're a child. Your abilities to handle it, you know, emotionally are different than if it, you know, if it happened when you're an adult. You know, you go through like just feeling angry and sad. I think at the core of it, it's just sadness. But that's still like a hard, hard thing to deal with sometimes. But it also gives you a really good um insight into how you you never know what's going on inside of people, right? And so it's like that's why like kindness is so important. It's like you never know what is going on in their head and what they're dealing with from the past or their present, whatever. Um, so I think overall that experience just taught me. And, you know, it's something I still need to practice, you know, is giving people the benefit of the doubt, you know.
0: If I'm not, if my history is correct, I think Vietnam ended in 75. Mm -hmm. You were born in 84. Mm -hmm. And so that must have been a long, hard road for him.
1: Probably. I would imagine. I mean, I think, you know, now we know so much more about the I mean, they're all wars or horror, you know, yeah. horrible, but especially of Vietnam and what those soldiers went through. And it's not like they were coming back victorious and, you know. Celebrated. Celebrated as in previous, like in World War II, the classic, you know, they're, they're such good examples to bounce off of each other because they're so different. And, you know, I'm still sure the soldiers back from World War II had, you know, obviously Backage. horrible, traumatic, yeah. yeah, as they would call it, shell-shocked. Yeah, I think to me it's just, it's a sad thing and it's something I wish that, like, our uh, institutions would do a better job at addressing and you know there needs to be some something better because i mean if when you look at like the homelessness problem in the country you know a lot i don't know the exact numbers but i would guess a large percentage are vets you Mm -hmm. know from whatever wars and it's like to me that's just so sad right it's like here they went like i would not want to go to war like (laughs) i'm glad there's not mandatory conscription here you know it's like I believe everybody should, you know, do stuff for their community and their country, but.
0: <laughs> Killing or being killed is heavy. Yeah,
1: especially when you didn't sign up for it. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, and I think too, I think there's less of a stigma now, but I mean, it's, it should be the opposite treatment, right? Right. People who go away who, you know, may or may not um, have signed up or, or had another outlet in life and that became their outlet versus someone who jumped in full, you know, with full transparency or desire to do so. I mean, the, those people should come back and not have to deal with PTSD right. or, you know, mental health issues or, you know, rehabilitation, that kind yeah. of thing. And they should at the very least be celebrated, right. right?
1: Let alone, you know, job security if they're no longer, you know, in the service, all of these things just yeah. it seems so stressful.
0: Yeah, totally. It's sad. It should be the opposite. Yeah. Is your dad still in your life? No. <laughs> is, he, is he alive? Uh,
1: yeah, he yeah. is. Yeah, but no, no he kind of just went away. Yeah, but my mom has a great uh, boyfriend. Well, now they're like domestic partners. They've been together 18 years. Um, this this Frenchy named Gerard, who I love, mm-hmm. so it's really good. Cool. Yeah, yeah, he's hilarious. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it's got to be tough because I think you know the older I get, the older my parents get. I'm dreading the moment of losing them. Right. And for you to have that as a adolescent or young adult, whatever has to be challenging. It was,
1: yeah, it was definitely challenging. Luckily I had a lot of good support around me. You know, I know it was obviously stressful for my mom. Like, you know, it's hard enough to be a parent, let alone then a single parent. Right. Luckily, I think I was a decent enough kid. You know, the cops never came to the house or anything. (laughs) Um, principal's office on the other hand (laughs) but um and then my like godmother's family was a great support and then Tahoe as a community I do think I don't know one of the benefits of growing and I guess like in a big city you make your community too but um in like such a small town, but it seemed like my mom's friends and like our family friends were really supportive and great. So, like a few different families that we've been friends with since, you know, before I was born, um, who really like stepped in and kind of filled gaps. And so I always felt like I had a lot of support, which I think is just the most important.
0: Yeah. I think mountain towns really take care of our own, you know, whether it's a, you know, what Rob Gaffney is going through right now or You know, someone is injured or, you know, we definitely, even if you might not be tight or friends with some of the community, everyone rallies. It's a pretty beautiful thing.
1: Right. That's why it's hard to move away from something like this. You know, like what you want to stay in the like community that you've developed. Yeah. You
0: step into the outside world and you're like, whoa. Yeah. Can we pump the brakes here? This is overwhelming. Yeah.
1: I think... I think to me, what like is me like making friends or more friends as an adult is, is pr- it's more difficult than it seems, you know, I wish they would teach you that in high school, like how right. to make friends as an adult, you know, like that would be better than learning like calculus. You know, when am I using right. like calculus, you know, things like that. So when I was younger, I just felt, you know, and it's like I was in so many, not so many, but like a lot of activities, um, and the parents, you know, like whether it was like other soccer parents, you know, would really help out and. Um, so it was just, it was a really great place to grow up and have that support, especially in those situations.
0: Very cool. You've written that running is the backbone to your life. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Well, I think one pretty constant in my life is that every day I'm going to go for a run or then in the winter it's different because in the winter I don't run, but then it would be a ski. It's just something that I feel like I need every day, like brushing my teeth. It's really, especially since I got out of college, I went to UC Davis for undergraduate. And then I had a couple years off where I moved back to Tahoe before I went back for nursing school. And in those couple years, it's like you're living up here. And I wasn't really into bar hopping. I'd done that enough, you know, at 18. (laughs) So I had all this time where I worked as a waitress on the daytime. I would just start – I was starting to hike, and then actually it was Tav who encouraged me um, to, like, kind of just start running longer, and then he said, oh, um, we should go do this 50K, this uh, Silver State in Reno. I was like, oh, that sounds great. So I had this, like, goal to train for, and just um, within that time of, like, training for that first race, I really just started to love being – I'd always – we'd grown, I'd grown up like re- hiking a ton. Like any vacations we would do it was always hiking and camping. There were never hotels or like beaches involved. So I loved being outside, like on my feet, but I had never really considered, you know, running for that long. But then when I had that race to train for, I was obviously doing it a lot. Um, and I really just started to love it and incorporate it just in like into my everyday life. It's just like, okay, what am I going to do with all my, with the free time I have today? I want to just be outside moving. Like I think movement in nature is just so great it's like my favorite thing side note i showed up for the 50k Tav did not show up for the 50k <laughs> Sandbagger. Yeah, exactly. um so it's really it's just something i've incorporated into like my everyday life and to think about not doing it it would be like well, what would i do with all that with that time that i'm not out there it's the way that i um sort through you know my to-do list i do that all when i'm running when i'm get creative when I'm, um, in college, I would use it as a time to study kind of, cause you know, and actually studies have shown this, that when you're, um, thinking about like, you know, whatever problem you're working on in school or whatever su- subject you're studying while you're running. And I think they said also listening to classical music and like embeds the, um, information more. So, and it's just, I don't know. So it's, it's what brings me like the most happiness. I mm-hmm. feel like the best part of the day is always like right. outside. So it so, gives you balance. Yeah. Yeah. It's I'm probably actually a little imbalanced. <laughs> like, there's probably a little too much. Um, and I've done that in the past where there's been too much of the like long runs or skis out, you know, a lot of time by yourself. And like, I think that can be not great too. So I think I found more balance in it now. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's still probably a little the scales are tipped a little bit. Right. Yeah.
0: Is it a spiritual endeavor for you? being in the mountains
1: I don't know if I think about it that way so consciously or um, with much intention I think if I were to zoom out and look at it well of course because without it I feel like I would feel lost and so I think something whatever that grounding force is in your life whether that's you know a higher power or you know your family whatever it's if you didn't have it and you were to feel lost then I do think it is some type of I don't know. some type of spiritual thing that you do so in that sense yeah I feel like I crave it and I need it and without it I don't feel like myself
0: right right and I think a common thread in all these conversations with mountain athletes is the fact that they're the best versions of themselves when they're doing it you know so like I watched the video of you doing the GR20 Mm -hmm. and um, you know having these whatever you want to call them, out-of-body suffering, you know, experiences. And when we chatted with Barry Blanchard, who is an admitted atheist, like should be dead 30 times over, flirt actively flirted with death in his alpine climbing career, but he referred to it in a really beautiful way. Uh, he's He referred to it as, a, you know, granted this is alpine climbing, but he's, he's a, he called it a radiant cathedral in that wow. with your partner's and he isn't, he's not religious with your partners you all collectively rise to every occasion which right. i you know think back in my life and say well the best conversations i've had or the most you know in depth thinking i've been able to do to your point has been while i'm doing these sports that we love
1: oh i completely agree with that i feel and it is funny i do feel like, maybe I am my best self out there. I'm definitely, like, the cheeriest and nicest and more likely to let things go, you know, and saying hi, so friendly to strangers on the trail, yeah. you know? So, definitely. I mean, and that's something, obviously, to do even chemically with what's going on in your body, getting those surge of good hormones and neurotransmitters and stuff. But there's something to it, for sure. Yeah. I really like that radiant cathedral.
0: You always seem to be most, at least for myself, most tuned into life
1: and that's why i feel like the friends you make doing those things become really like tried and true and like some of your closest best friends because the bonding that goes on right and those type of things is different than if you just have a friend that you know meet for drinks or whatever there's yes. definitely a different connection that's yeah. made
0: not yeah. that
1: i don't love those drinking friends yeah but <laughs> they're fun too yeah. yeah
0: no it's a good it's a totally valid point because we you know in climbing obviously talk a lot about the brother or sisterhood of the rope yeah and I use the analogy of going to Denali for some for some ski descents and going with someone who I don't who lives in Tahoe and I don't we're friends but we don't recreate together we don't hang out but you can run into that person after not seeing them for a few months and you just you pick right back up
1: yeah exactly it's really strong yeah,
0: yeah if only everyone could experience that right the world would be a little bit better of a place I, mean, I think
1: I mean I think just more outdoor exercise time for everyone would be do the world a good. (laughs) Yes.
0: What has suffering taught you in your alternating career?
1: I try not to look at it as suffering because I think that, so the, the long distance, like endurance endeavors, it's a combination of physical and um, mental challenges. And, um, but the mental challenges for me is like, once I start going negative in my head, sometimes it's really like that can just, you can just start digging that hole and it's hard to get out of. So I think of it, I'll think of it sometimes as discomfort or I just think of it as a low point. Because when I start saying suffering, it just seems like, oh, that's insurmountable. Right. You know, and that's also like. Yeah. And also to me, suffering, there also is something involved in suffering where suffering to me seems worse when it's involuntary, right? Like, you know, so much suffering goes on in the world that's involuntary. And like what I'm doing by running for hours on it, that's totally voluntary. So I try and frame it that way, but don't get me wrong. A lot of it, like sometimes, you know, you can really be in the pain cave and it really hurts. um, And you're just over it and you're like, why am I doing this? This is so stupid. I usually give myself kind of like time limits on that in a way. I'll tell myself in my head, like, okay, you're in a low point you can just ride out this low point for an hour and if it's out in an hour, it's not better, you can drop out or you can stop or whatever. Um, and I'll usually try and troubleshoot within that time and then slow down, you know, maybe eat, whatever, and then have my mind not focus on the pain and discomfort. So I have, there's different tricks this. It's actually kind of just like some mental tricks I taught myself um, to just distract your brain from the discomfort is um, I'll start replaying like a favorite movie in my head, kind of like scene by scene and go through it that way. Or maybe thinking like, oh, after this, we're gonna go out to dinner. And if I wasn't paying, what would I order on a restaurant and kind of, or do that or like go through. One time I remember um, doing a race and it was like raining and it just was like not so, it was like a slog, you know? And I can remember thinking about if I could remember every single piece of laundry I had in my dryer and like folding it. And by the time I went through that mentally in my head, you know, it had been 15 or 20 minutes or whatever. And then you're like, oh, I'm not feeling so horrible anymore. I can kind of pick up the pace. So it's like mental tricks like that. Eventually you get to the point where even thinking kind of hurts. You know what I mean? It's like even having to do the mental exercise of daydreaming feels like too much work. Like that feels like heavy lifting. So then I think I'm pretty good at just zoning out. Right. Like just no thoughts mm-hmm. after that. Then, and that's usually like when the low point's been for a while and towards the end of something, you know? Because right. um, I always have this thing happen to me, not always, but frequently where it's like mile 30 out of like a 100 mile race for me is the worst, like mile 30 to 40. I just always know for some reason, whatever it is at that point, I'm feeling crummy. And that's when I'll do those other little mental tricks. But towards the end of the race, when you're just like exhausted, um, and sleep deprived, which I think plays a huge role into the mental exhaustion. I just zone out. I just try and just look at my surroundings, kind of think about my surroundings and then that's it. And maybe think one other thought like, okay, at the next aid station, what are you going to do? Or at the, or just make it to that next peak or that next mountain. And it's just that simple thought. Mm-hmm. So eventually you just have to quiet everything in your right. head. Yeah. Further on.
0: Are you able, so I hear a lot of like, Perseverance, you know, head down, pushing through things. Are you able to take that, those lessons that you learn, those tactics, into your everyday life?
1: Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, I wish <laughs> I wish I could have more like perseverance and resilience in other parts of my life. It's easier when it's just like you out alone on a trail, right. You are butting up against all these other things. Definitely in my nursing life. So I work twelve-hour shifts, night shifts, and um, which can be hard and um and I do three in a row and that first day on I'm essentially staying up like 24 hours because I'm not a night owl on my days off so anyway so I'll remind myself I'll be like well you can run for 24 hours you can do a nursing shift where you'll get to sit down for 12 (laughs) so that type of thing actually I think does help you're like well it's not so bad like it could be worse or I tell myself I can do whatever for 12 hours the endurance component of it, I guess that that does help through other parts of life. Right. But yeah.
0: What other parts of your life would you like more resilience in?
1: I guess I would actually like a little bit more, maybe it's the diligence that I brought to, that, that I brought to some like running and running preparation and I, I'd like that in other parts of my life. Like I've been trying to brush up on my Spanish, or you know, do this certification course for work. And it's like, why can't I have the follow-through and determination for those things as opposed to some silly little running
0: endeavor? Right. <laughs> you know, because running's more fun.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I've watched the the sport, you mm-hmm. know, ultra running boom over the last fifteen years, and this is a generalization, but it seems to me you know, from participating and then, you know, living in that world that many elites are, are, have a finite career, like through, it seems to be three years and people will boom and then they're kind of done and dusted and you don't hear much from them anymore, but you defy the trend. Why do you think that is?
1: (laughs) Oh, I don't know if I agree with that. I definitely feel like I had some, like four or five years ago, I was maybe more in peak race shape. Or had a little bit more motivation for races and now,
0: like UTMB or yeah. 13 14. Yeah,
1: and now I kind of have shifted the focus as I think probably a lot of runners do, or maybe this is just getting a little bit older. I just like big long things that are not races, big long endeavors. Those just days when you like get back to the car, or your house, or whatever, and you're just exhausted, but like in such a good way. I think I, I do have. Uh, kind of a theory with no evidence whatsoever that um the average person has a certain number of like ultra races in them before it's like you really are getting diminishing returns and you're doing you know maybe some long-term damage to your body 100 mile races are tough obviously And even though I feel like I, I think, and I think this just happens with experience. I feel that I'm able to recover faster than I used to from like, from a hundred mile race, you know, like I'll be running back sooner, but I still feel like I'm dragging that invisible piano behind me. Um, And so they take a lot out of you. So I think what happens, what you see in the sport pretty typical is somebody come, you know, gets into ultra running does, does well, you know, they're good at it. They, they have, you know, whatever they're adept at it. Then, You kind you get hooked to that feeling of oh I want to do more races it's going so well and but these are it's taxing even a 50k it's like at a cellular level what's going on you're depleting your mitochondria those that takes a month to return and then you're not allowing yourself to fully recover and you do that for a couple years and then that's when you really see the drop off that's kind of a rough you know idea and i feel and and but i think there's some anecdotal evidence for that so for me i've liked to not do so many races right. <laughs> every year i think that's one way to combat it and then also not running year round you know we're lucky here in tahoe that in the winter i get to do a lot of other things and i will still run maybe one or two days a week depending on how big this the snow is that week um in the winter, I'll just go in the afternoons from my house at Donner Lake up to the top of Old Forty, um, and then back down. But um, and that's more just at sunset, cause you know that wanting to be outside at sunset thing. But that'll keep you know the tendons and ligaments for running kind of kind of going. But I don't run year round, and so that's where I f- think you see this kind of burnout happening. And I just think there is a limited number of times you can go out and run, especially the hundred milers. <laughs> Well, and
0: I think it takes a little bit different toll on the body than say, you know, climbing or maybe even arguably skiing and whatnot. But what I really respect in our outdoor space, you know, ski, run, climb is when athletes have a tremendously successful career, but then start to evolve, you know, because they realize that, well, maybe I'm not going to be a sponsored athlete my entire career. Or, you know, so take someone like, you know, Emily Harrington, who was a, rock climbing phenom as a child yeah. and who now has evolved to a big mountain climber and skier and and continues that evolution I, i'm always interested in people's takes on that
1: well i, I think um that it's, it's kind of natural for that to happen in a way and i think if you want to stay in your sport and stay interested and motivated and still you know feel whatever the equivalent of butterflies are in that sort is you need to kind of mix it up and and, and change it up and find new new little mountains to conquer for me and for a lot of people in ultra running who still um you know I don't love racing <laughs> um, but I love running and even if I never did another race in my life I it would not fundamentally change how, how much like the the amount of time I run or how I run, it would change it a little bit. Like I would never have to do intervals again. Not that I ever do, but <laughs> I definitely wouldn't. I wouldn't have to feel any guilt about that. <laughs> um, but other than that, I mean, it's just such a true love. And I, I'm sure Emily feels this way about climbing and so many other people do. Is that when you find that true love, you'll just find different ways to, to do it and to stay interested in it and to switch up the focus and to, to find, you know whatever whatever you felt that initial time when you went out yeah and so for me that's definitely um doing just you know longer trail runs like the thing I did in Corsica and that's like those type like what people call like little projects that um it is exciting especially to when all of it's just on you all the planning is on you it's so easy to show up to a race it's just you know essentially a long catered run which is so nice (laughs) it's like it's easier than going out on your own long trail run so you don't have to worry about the food so easy yeah and it's all marked Mm -hmm. so I think doing that longer stuff is a good way for me to tackle the sport from a different angle
0: you know obviously you're an innately gifted athlete um, and then you've compounded that by training you know practice but I think what I like about your approach is you keep it fun you know you're very open with the fact that you're not doing these races for an ego uh, component you're doing it to have fun and you know I think just by doing that and not maybe over racing or whatever, you've elongated your career.
1: I hope so, or at least elongated how long I can keep running at this whatever rate I'm going at. Um, time, whatever t- how much time I'm wasting in the woods every week. Um, it's funny you say that the thing about the ego, and so that it was definitely a lesson I had to learn because. Well, I, and
0: I should sorry to interrupt uh, you. I yeah. should qualify this by telling people who are listening, like you're an international running star. <laughs> and that's safe to say. I know you might not like cop to that, but you are you know, having one UTMB two years in a row placed in the top 10, you know, like those are major, major accolades. Oh, uh, Thanks. Um, <laughs> Second at Western States, uh, right?
1: Yeah. And well, so <clears throat> one year at Western States where I learned the thing about letting go of the, you know, ego gratification that comes with racing. Um, and instead, really trying to shift the focus. And this is something also Tav has taught me um, about really just loving, like having that pure love for it um, and feeling just so much happiness and joy, not like it's a chore and something you're being forced to do is I did, it was my fourth year doing Western States. It was 2013 and it was really hot and I hate the heat to begin with. I'm a baby about it. I get worse as I get older, but it was like the second hottest year on record. It was just miserable. miserable and like halfway through the race i am like not processing any water i look like a puffer fish you know it's just it's horrible and i'm just feeling awful and i finished the race and it re- it wrecked me like i was so mad at myself because the next like three weeks in Tahoe were so nice and I had some time off of work and I had friends in town and here I was just with that imaginary like two pianos behind me yeah, like a grand destroyed. piano just destroyed I lost nine toenails during the race well I didn't lose them I know where they went <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was awful because of all the water weight I had gained and I looked at that experience and I was like okay why did I feel like I had to finish what was that like I I felt that, oh, I had all these friends and family who were there who had put in so much time and effort and energy into coming to watch and it would be so disappointing for them. And, um, well, I do think that should factor in a little bit. Like sometimes that can make you dig a little deeper, you know. In other cases when you think that, okay, am I really just doing, am I damaging myself so much that, you know, the next month or however long is just going to really stink for me, is that worth it? Do I need to finish just to feel good about myself? At this point, I had already, it might be different if it was your first and maybe what you're thinking is just bucket list type of thing. Like you're just going to push through. And I have total respect for that. But I also think, especially in ultra running, people feel that they have to finish. And I know there's a lot of factors that go into that. Like the time you spent, um, you know, training for the race and the money and all of that. But mm, at some point, if it's so miserable, and if you feel that, You're you're just doing so much damage to yourself. What's the point? Your family, your friends, and family wouldn't want that for you, right? right? (laughs) Yeah. And so I really thought about it. I was like, Would I need to do that again? I already proved to myself that I was able to run 100 miles. Um. So I didn't. So was it an ego gratification to be like, Oh, I'm so tough. I finished. I look back and think it was a silly, silly decision to finish that race. And I haven't done that ever again. (laughs) I've actually enjoyed my time out there even when it's like you hit those low points you're still like well I'm glad I'm out here like I'm glad I'm because that challenge is fun like is fun Mm -hmm. Um, but that other level of just it's just when it's so miserable to me that's why I'll never do a hot race again I'll never go to the jungle like those just I don't need yeah no bad water I don't you know I don't need to prove that I'm like tough as leather
0: so well I think you've proved that I think it says a lot that you can make that um, you you can draw that uh, correlation, you know. Yeah, Well, it took
1: it, that horrible experience to learn it. So.
0: <laughs> right, but there's a lot of people in the sport who just you know they're very uh, dropping from a race is very anathema, and you know you hear a lot of elites say, "Well, I'm gonna walk it in," yeah. you know, even if it's miserable. But yeah, I think that can go both ways. Right,
1: I do too. And yeah. there's been you know I've finished a race where I essentially had food poisoning. And, but I was still really kind of liking it, even though I was going so slow. So I finished.
0: You, you talk openly, too, about your depression as a teenager mm-hmm. and uh, how running helped you cope, uh, which was, you know, as I, I spend about a week, you know, getting ready to learning about you more than I already know about you as a friend. And, you know, I was surprised to read that because you, you, to me, you seem like a very ebullient, stoked on life person. What did or does depression look like for you?
1: A lot of just a, alone time, dark thoughts, the typical, like not wanting to be social, um, not seeing the good in things, not finding any joy in anything, um, thinking that it'll never get better. Uh, I think a lot more people deal with depression than, you know, let on or that anybody knows. It's that thing, again, of never knowing what somebody's going through. And I do think, you know, a lot of people, you know, c- the typical comedian you know a lot of them have suffered through you know deep depressive periods. so it's just a universal thing it's like again it's a really um deep loneliness I think I think when you're depressed you feel so lonely like even the ones around you don't understand or can't empathize and you just feel like you're this own your little private island floating out in this big sea and the waves are just crashing in on you And, you know, there's obviously gradations of depression and some can be way worse. I still go through and I, it's, you know, common to go through not just kind of like low points, but definite, you know, spats of depression as an adult. And I definitely think the being outside exercising definitely helps. It's definitely, you know, it's not a cure-all, but it definitely doesn't hurt. Um, it's definitely something I've used to like get through those types of things. Um, uh, but yeah, and I imagine I'll have more bouts of it, you know, in life. I feel like a lot of people do, whether it's a true like clinical depression or just those
0: points where you're like, this sucks. <laughs> mm-hmm. You yeah, know, we were just listening to the radio last night and we, they were saying, you know, there's new studies that have come out saying that there's eight to 10 to 12 different types of depression, which was fascinating for me to listen to because oh, then yeah. it makes sense because everyone, I think more people suffer from depression that we realize or recognize maybe but it's very very prominent yeah
1: i think it's good that people i think it's good to talk openly about it in a way because again it's that's like removing that stigma or creating that awareness and seeing like oh these other people have gone through this you know it's not
0: just me right yeah when i think too in the alternating world it was it really hit a nice pace when um rob carr started talking about his struggles with Mm -hmm. depression you know iconic runner who had won western states and and many other races but then i felt like there was a cascading effect where then other athletes started talking about it which i think is very like you said very empowering and very insightful for quote-unquote everyday people to say like yeah i'm not alone in this struggle and
1: right there are other people yeah and i think it's good when you see people who seem like they have everything going for them right say that they are still fighting yeah exactly
0: Jaybird, one Mm -hmm. of your sponsors, Mm -hmm. created some stunning video documentation of not only your personality, which is really fun, but also the power of how running can inspire and and unite us across the world, You know, regardless of creed. It's called Run Wild, and I Mm -hmm. would definitely encourage everyone listening to check it out, whether you're a runner or not. You took part in an episode that highlighted young women runners in Ethiopia. Can you elaborate on the trip?
1: Oh, I would love to. It was the highlight of the year if not one of my one of mine of my life um yeah the j bird run wild series it was so cool to be a part of that that was all um a collaboration between j bird and camp four collective and their work i think is just you know yeah it's spectacular so you always know you're in good hands so yeah a group of us a small group went out to um this little village um Little, it's like a three or four-hour drive outside of uh, Addis Ababa, um, called Bokoji. And this town is actually like world renowned for being. um, There was that little documentary. um, What was it called? Runners Town or? um, I don't know. Gosh, Town of Runners? No, Village of Runners? But it played on the
0: history of the runners. Yeah,
1: and so it's um, there. He doesn't really. I don't know if he still kind of coaches anymore, but. 10 years ago, so this they just call him Coach, had developed this really um, elite um, <laughs> uh, running program in this small little village of Bacoji, and he was just putting out all these insanely good runners. Then this town became known for the amount of high-class runners, world-quality runners it puts out, um, and this coach kind of became famous for it. And then one of his kind of protégés, um, this other woman, started kind of coaching too, and This NGO, this nonprofit called Girls Gotta Run, which was started in the US with the intention of creating you know safe spaces where you can not only you know empower these girls but you know obviously also they're you know running which is so great and they're creating this community amongst each other in this place where it's like they're learning to build this self-confidence and develop this skill and it's like you know obviously running and sports bring so much more to a person than just the the physical so girls gotta run has this coach in mikoji and who has this group of girls they're I think they have up to like 50 girls ages like 10 to 17 and they train five to six days a week rain or shine and you know most of them are walking to the track or wherever they're meeting you know walking two miles each way you know it's a very rural village there's There's running water, but most people don't have it. You know, most people don't have plumbing or electricity or, well, bouts of electricity. The people we met were just so warm and welcoming. And it was such a great – it was, you know, obviously I think the great thing about traveling is how eye-opening it is and how great it is to just – um see how other people live um to learn things from how they live to then you know appreciate more maybe some things that you have in your life that you haven't been appreciating to see how happy so many of these girls were that we were interacting with when they're living such what we would consider hard lives like really hard lives and yet they just have this tremendous spirit about them this like unbreakable cheerful joyous spirit um and the running was hard <laughs> we were doing 400 some, I mean some the older girls like the teenage girls I mean they can kick my butt and they are fast runners we they're doing, like
0: Olympic oh yeah they're being
1: trained speed. for like yeah and I mean their program is intense like they keep it fun with like, like the dancing and songs and stuff they sing but they are training and like coach like pushes those girls I mean, she's definitely the boss but we were doing like 400 meter repeats and at one point I had to pretend like I needed to go to the bathroom because I really just wanted to like puke with exhaustion I was like I can't do this I can't keep up with these girls they were so fast and they come with what I really loved like being able to do that was to see how happy the running made them it it kind of you know it re-enthused me and kind of reinforced like oh why I love this sport and um, how great it is to see how much these girls are getting out of this and the girls gotta run I mean it's an amazing organization they also have a component of the program where not only do they provide some like nutritional support to the girls like a lunch every day and they give them running clothes and stuff but they've also worked with a lot of the moms of the girls to set up their own little shop in town in the town market um, where they sell like soaps and things and they try and get the girls on like a good educational course to maybe go on to college even though that's still really rare in that area but to hopefully have some type of vocational skill or something so it's, it was just an amazing organization mm-hmm. to work with it was so cool
0: right I, I thought it was really well done from portraying the fact that that village was responsible for the first Ethiopian woman I think maybe African to win an Olympic medal yeah um to showing these girls in their cotton sweatpants and non-branded running shoes right very different from the Western world and how you know, much they're loving it.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's interesting nowadays in the U.S., um, it's hard to hang out with kids or be around kids for a long time without screens becoming involved, right? Um, not an issue there. Not an issue there. And um, so there is something so different about the interactions among kids and um, with adults and how you spend your time together that I like we would just go and do some home visits with these girls and their their parents and their families and um the process for making coffee over there is like I love coffee um and I mean Ethiopia the birthplace mm-hmm. of coffee i think it was originally found by a goat herder or something in Ethiopia who saw his goats eating the berries and they were getting all you know jacked up so they're they're coffee ceremonies that they do it's like a ceremony because it takes so long they're like hand grinding the beans and they use this like beautiful urn jug thing and you know so you go over to somebody's house for coffee and it takes like an hour and you know it's nice to have that time to like just sit and be with people and you're not like watching something on tv you're not all on your phones you're just you're just there with them um you're just yeah and i loved that I just fell in love with that town and mm-hmm. with, like, the people there. I would love to go back. And it's gorgeous. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. There's this national park that's about a four-hour drive outside of town. And we took the two girls who are um, most featured in the film. It was, like, the first time they had been in a long car ride, the first time they had gone out of their village. And we took them to this national park where we were seeing baboons and all these animals. And they got to stay in a hotel for the first time. And it was just – it was amazing. It was Wild. so fun. Yeah.
0: When I think you hear very commonly in places that don't have maybe the privilege that the Western world has from amenities to smartphones to whatever, that they're arguably significantly happier. Yeah. Which, which is interesting. It
1: is interesting. It's that, you know, it's that thing about like how making how much money makes you, you know, the correlation with money and happiness. And, you know, you have to reach a certain point. Where did that come from? Yeah, anyway? exactly. But it's that? like, obviously being super poor doesn't sound like any fun. Um, so you reach like some level where you reach like this plateau of happiness, but then like being super rich, you start to see the decline again, right? Or however that works. So there's that like sweet spot. But I think these people, like the people over in Bakoji, they've just learned how to live and be happy with what they have mm-hmm. um, and there is isn't this focus of I think in the U.S. especially we're pretty aspirational and you know capitalist society and the rat race and yep. all of that I don't think those are things that necessarily lead to happiness in your day-to-day life mm-hmm. <laughs> always that's yeah,
0: an instructional tale right? <clears throat> right
1: exactly it's uh it was really interesting and um eye-opening to see um, just their everyday day-to-day lives and how happy they seem to be living them, you know, and it's like with less. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's pretty cool. With less. Less is more. (laughs) But that said, it's like, I don't want to romanticize it because a lot of it, you know, having the basics is really nice and everybody should have access to clean water and electricity and, Mm -hmm. you know, those basics.
0: Yeah. But it's very compelling when you see, when they show the families cooking on a Wood stove oh, in a yeah. dirt hut, you oh, know, yeah. it's very, yeah, very really powerful. So, yeah. What do you think of the concept that our athletic pursuits are or can be perceived as selfish motivations?
1: I struggle with that because sometimes I do feel like it can be a little selfish. But I mean, a lot of things in life are. You could argue that any kind of hobby, you know, unless it's volunteering down at the soup kitchen, is is kind of inherently a little selfish because it's something you're doing for you. I, don't think that that's a bad thing. Um, you know, every, everybody deserves to have some me time. And I think it's good. I think it makes you a better all-around, rounded, well-rounded person. You know, I know plenty of my friends who are like busy parents would just kill for some selfish me time. And I'm sure it would do them good. I do think you can take it a little too far, obviously. Sometimes I've felt that it's, I don't know if I would use the word selfish, but not as... Productive with my time as I could be to be doing all this running just every day out there for hours by myself. It's like, well, couldn't I? I could be working more, you know, I could be taking care of a little kid, feel like a more productive member of society. I think that's a bigger you know, existential thing that you deal with throughout your life is feeling like oh, am i crisis. doing yeah, am i doing enough as a person, you know? Am i being being my best self type of thing. And so that's where I feel like that selfishness thing can come in. You can feel like oh, am i just devoting all this time to me and if so, why? Is it that ego thing again? Like I want to train and do great at this race or is it just for me? It's more it's something I just really love to do. You know, I'm glad I'm not like addicted to video games because <laughs> But I also feel like it bring so many good things to me, whether it's that mental health component we were talking about, and then obviously just physical exercise is good, but I feel like it does make me a better person when I go back to my life. I'm able to interact with my loved ones and friends and family on a better level, then I need that release. That said, I mean, there are, I do feel sometimes like a little bit selfish when in the past I've taken off for like an entire summer and ignored my responsibilities back home to go air quotes, train for a race, you know, when really the race was just the excuse to justify all the time I wanted to spend over in Europe. So in that sense, that's a little selfish.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I, and I struggle with it too. I think every athlete, well, hopefully does, but I think there's, there's a few ways to look at it from, from my brain. It's like, one is, yeah, I'm doing something selfish for myself, but you're allowed to do that. Like yeah. everyone else can make that choice in life. But I think the flip side of that is what you could argue is by, by doing that, you know, c- catering to your own mental health and your, you know, endorphin release, etc., all these proven things that it makes you a better person to then reinsert yourself into the world.
1: Right. That's how I that's how I justify it also. Right? Yeah. <laughs> no, but I think it's true. I
0: right. do. I
1: mean, I definitely know that I am testier and a little bit more on edge when I haven't had enough. And but for me, it's not just the exercise. Because I would not run if I could only if I had to run on like pavement all the time or on a treadmill. To me, that's not the same thing. It's the the combination of being outside in nature and moving and using your own body to move through space. There's something about that combo um, that I need. Because you know, if it's like a like horrible weather outside, and I mean, I love still playing outside when it's raining and snow. But let's say you want to do a little bit more like indoor activity i don't get that same type of satisfaction yeah from you know doing my jane fonda exercises which i still do you can find her on youtube she had some hits uh very effective but i'm not getting to that happy place doing the jane fonda
0: yeah i'm a race director i'm a runner i'm an athlete and i just wonder you know the way that maybe it's just becoming older i would like to see our sport become more of an agent for change? You know, I mean, personal records, FKTs, bucket list destination races, which help me make a living, you know, (laughs) admittedly, um, those are all great. But do you think running has the capability to make, you know, to cultivate a change for the better in the world? Or should it?
1: Oh, I think I definitely think if it can, it should. The one thing about running, obviously, it's universal. I mean, it's you know it's the most participated in sport in the world i mean it's the easiest one to access lowest barrier to entry Mm -hmm. you know it's so worldwide you know that's what i felt like when i was with those girls in ethiopia or when i do these races internationally or travel internationally um that thing about bonding with somebody that has you know knows what it's like to be a runner or whatever so and so many people do it I mean, you look at, you know, road marathons, what the New York City Marathon gets 50,000 people. It's like if 50,000 people can come together on one day to run, and so many New Yorkers call it, like, the best day in New York because it just brings this, like, level of...
0: Love and enf- energy. Yeah, right?
1: enthusiasm. It's like, okay, so if you have that, can't you harness all of that to maybe move something in some direction or do something bigger? You know, if you can get all these people together to go run 26 miles on pavement? Like, right. So there's obviously something there. Mm -hmm. I think it's a big undertaking, but it's that thing again about the more people that do it, the better they'll be when they go back to their regular life. So even just the act of doing it, um, I think is good to, you know, get people into the sport. I've seen firsthand from friends of mine who, you know, have done ultras because they saw me doing it and how much I liked it. And then they start loving it, you know? And so just to be able to have like to spread the word and see how much, pleasure it can bring to other people's lives is maybe just enough Mm -hmm. um and then the you know ripple effects from that but you know there's got to be some common thread among all these people who like to go you know run marathons or whatever and the thing about running it and you know all sports is it crosses all demographics right so if you have this one thing in common can't you find more to agree on and just be you know, I don't know, create a kinder world or something. I don't
0: know. Yeah, I no, it's It'd a good point. You know, focus on what you have in common as opposed yeah. to what you don't have in common. Yeah. Which I think is a major polarizing issue. Right. All today. too common. Yeah. yeah. And I think too, you know, it's a good point that you make that you can just by your own lifestyle make an impact on people's lives. But, you know, running gives us our, our freedom and um, confidence and our identity, arguably. But then, you know, I look at taking that to an organization like girls on the run you right know, which is very timely you know in this day and age and as it should be giving an outlet you know to people for empowerment and self-confidence is is pretty awesome
1: oh it's huge and i especially think like with the girls gotta run getting those girls at such a young age you know in such critical years um i definitely think if we could get more women, obviously, into sports. Because, I mean, the numbers are still skewed. In the U.S., it's a yep. little bit different. You know, you see, like, equal numbers of little girls and little boys, like, doing sports. But you go to a lot of other countries in the world, and that's not the case. So, obviously, if that could be spread to, you know, more women and um, disadvantaged people across the world, right. that would be great.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's something that I'm sensitive to as well, you know, the gender discrepancy in our industry. It's like, to me, it's undeniable from... Um, a contract perspective from you know a a race perspective and i've been hearing a lot lately of race directors promoting the fact that their races have equal pay which is very i mean i was to be honest i was surprised to hear that kind of thing not because of people are getting equal pay that but to me that's just a given
1: i feel the same way like
0: why why do you need a pat on the back for for doing what is the right thing. It's just very interesting to me.
1: I said that exact same thing that's so funny in like another interview I did a couple weeks ago with Iron Farr. And I said, same thing. It's nice. It's it's great that it's equal prize money, but that's the de- that should be the default. Yeah. Like that's just how it should be. It's like, you know, giving a parent you know, props on the back for actually being a parent and not being a deadbeat. It's like, well, no, that's the responsibility. Like, right. That's what you have to do. That's the, the right thing to do. You don't get kudos for just doing the, you know, minimal right thing there is to do. Okay.
0: Yeah. And maybe that <laughs> says something about our world today. But yeah, um, And I do think there's still some hurdles, obviously, to get over, many hurdles to get over before we have true equality in many aspects of life, gender, race, etc. But, you know, I struggle in our industry because... I'm so, my personal life is so deeply entwined in these sports and, you know, whatnot that I struggle with seeing, um, you know, any athlete struggle with a contract because I think our companies are inherently, some are very good. I'd say few are very good, probably, like on one hand. And then a lot of them are not, you know. And so do you you see a gender uh, inequity there?
1: Oh, totally. And I wish... So where I work as a nurse because it's a UC institution, all of our salary information is public information, which I actually think is a good thing. <laughs> um and I wish that these companies or other athletes would all just get together and be like, "You know what? Let's all tell each other what we're making." Because I know for sure I am not making as much and I know a lot of other female runners were not making nearly as much as the male runners. I just I I know from things I've been told by Um, you know, good sources, but without having that information out uh, in the public, or at least among the people who are, you know, getting among the athletes, it's hard for some women to know what to ask for, what to negotiate for. And, you know, so many, uh, you know, years of research has shown how women negotiate differently in contract situations than men and how the men tend to get more what they want and the women just kind of settle, you know, and there's obviously gender dynamics there at play. I think it would be great if, you know, I wanted to do a little survey of my fellow runners, male and women and do like an anonymous survey, make it anonymous to just see where everybody's at Mm -hmm. because it would be really interesting. And I think a lot of these companies, you know, talk a big game, but when it comes down to the actual numbers and the thing that honestly, you know, does matter most money in this situation. It's kind of hollow. Yeah, exactly. They're not putting their money where their mouth is. Right. Um, But it's hard to know that or prove that when it's all not out in the open. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I would like to see it change, but it seems difficult.
0: Right. Yeah. You know, the other thing I struggle with is the, the brands that say they support the sport and growing the sport and getting new people into the sport and a diverse new set of people that aren't white. Right. Um, but I think a lot of that's marketing, you know, like if if we think of the major brands and I give the North Face a lot of respect for saying, okay, Conrad Anchor, like you've kind of become a, a golden age athlete of ours. We're shifting you over to this position and we're putting Hillary up as the team captain. But there's a lot of companies, you know, if we think of the major brands in our space who say they support the sport, but what, what are they really doing?
1: Right. What does that mean? I definitely think there could be a lot more done in the outdoor world, outdoor industry for reaching out to non-white men and non-white women you know really like you look at the ski industry i mean that's just white dudes after white dudes and but i mean skiing also has this inherent problem of now becoming so elitist that it's like how can anybody afford to do it Mm -hmm. the argument i have heard about like why women's race like the women's race at utmb just before a couple years ago would never be broadcast on like the live TV feed that they do. It would always be the men's and you'd get little like Chiron scrolls at the bottom for the women's update which just annoyed me and some of the excuses I heard were, well, oh, you know, people just don't care about the women's race as much. But it's like chicken and egg type of thing where, okay, but A, I think they do Um, and so a lot of this comes down to marketing and to what's put out in in media content. And it's like, how are you going to attract people to the sport if all they're seeing in your advertisements and whatever promotional stuff you're doing is all people who don't look like them? Right. So it's like you need to bring people on as athletes, like for sure, all companies could do better with this. I mean, if you look at the rosters, it's mostly white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and for sure, white people are not the only people that run. So, right. Or <laughs> um, fine, yeah. You know. Or anything. And so it's like you need to start seeing more brands bring on. diversity of athletes and ambassadors and you need to see that reflected in their marketing material and whatever content they're putting out there and then i think seeing somebody who looks like yourself doing something makes obviously makes you feel more likely that you will be able to do it it's it's hard to get such a like paradigm shift with these companies to make them do that because at the the end of the day
0: they're about profit yeah Exactly. You know, regardless of yeah. what anyone says of that right. company.
1: But you would think that if you have a bigger tent, you have <laughs> more chances for more profit. Right.
0: Well, and I think it you know, we look at Alpenglow's business and we say we have a responsibility to give back. Not just, yeah, we have financial realities and, you know, debt and that kind of thing. But I'm a firm believer that if you do the right thing, it works out. Right. And if you and if it doesn't, at least you you're doing it on your terms. Right. There's no there's no yeah. Nonsense or yeah. or Smoke and mirrors, you know? right? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you've said that passion alone doesn't always equate to success. How do you f- define success? Oof.
1: I don't think I define it often. <laughs> I feel like success is feeling, whether it's, you know, in a running race or in your professional career or su- successful friendships, is feeling like you're getting out almost more than you're putting into it whatever that is right like that feels like success like I did all this effort but oh my god the reward was so huge and even better more than the sum of the parts you can feel that way after a good race it's like oh wow I really trained really well for that I loved doing it you know I pushed through the hard times and wow this is so great and feel like you just like left it all out there and gave like all of yourself to it and so I guess that is just essentially saying like know that you did your best is you know corny but it's like what success is because I've definitely had things go right in life whether it's like doing well in a race but not feeling like I felt good about that race whether it's how I performed or just how the race went from, you know, my perspective, my attitude or whatever. And so the results don't necessarily indicate, you know, how successful it was to you on a personal level. In that sense, I feel like if for the running stuff, if you're enjoying your time out there and you're really like thinking, oh, I wouldn't rather be anywhere else. Like to me, that's that's success. Then Mm -hmm. you're using your time wisely, like using your time wisely. That feels like a success.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think you're living a successful and fulfilling life?
1: Uh, For the most part, I mean, I don't have too many complaints in life. Of course, there's things I'd like to change about myself, but on a day-to-day basis, I feel pretty happy and lucky to be able to live in a place I love, um, spend all this time in the mountains doing stuff that I love to do, have a... nice career that's like very rewarding and a really good balance for me that feels you know successful Mm -hmm. um you know I don't own a house yet or anything but it's like well that'll come (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. you'll be a lot
0: I can tell you you'll be more you'll be more poor when you own your house yeah
1: (laughs) I like where I live now so (laughs) it's hard to leave
0: (laughs) on this podcast you know in actually you're the first runner that I've recorded with so that's really cool Um, and I'm grateful for that, but, um, we talk a lot about how, you know, about loss in the mountains, mm-hmm. how, uh, the sports we love can take the ones we love and even, you know, arguably ourselves if we're not careful or lucky. Um, and it doesn't have the same correlation to running, right? There's still, um, risk, but it's, I think, less safe Obviously, to say, right? Yeah. Um, but you've lived in the mountains your entire life mm-hmm. and initially experienced loss. Mm-hmm. How, how do you cope with that?
1: I just lost a friend last year to a mountain accident. Um, and I, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and I've known numerous people, I mean, just growing up here, who, you know, avalanches, freak accidents, whatever. I think loss is really hard. Obviously, is always really hard. I think for me what's hard about it is I don't have, a, a, you know, I'm not a religious person. And in, in those times of loss and somebody dying in your life, I think, oh, wow, that would be nice to have something more to lean on. You know, some, some type of solace you could take from this, you know fundamental part of your life which i just i just don't i don't have that so for me it's definitely you know the higher power thing of going outside and running wild in the mountains definitely helps me cope cope with loss um i think to feel um just the bigger world world around you helps at work we see it all the time with Mm -hmm. kids it's you know, it's just one of those unexplainable things about life. I try to think about, um, at least with like friends I've lost, dwell more on like the ha- like happy memories that you have with them. And like, well, we had that time together. Um, but it's so hard because you think, well, we won't get that time in the future. And, you know, this person got gypped and, mm-hmm. you know, it was like a life cut short. We have this as a society tendency to think like, well, you should move on and you should... Um, Especially like people, you know, who are super close with somebody who they've lost. But, you know, sometimes that obviously that loss hangs with you for your life. And it's okay to acknowledge that and be like, no, it always just hurts. Like you find strategies around it. And obviously, you know, with time, it's like it's not quite as sharp. But it's like if you really, truly loved and cared for somebody, you're always going to feel that loss. And I think you should. I think that's part of life. It's like you have to feel all the emotions. Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
0: You have someone with skin in the game of that quote unquote extreme athlete, mm-hmm. which I know he's not into, but mm-hmm. for the general listener that they yeah. can relate to his, um, his passions. Does that change your perspective of fearing loss or?
1: Mm, I don't think it changes my perspective. I think it makes you more aware of it. Right? And it's kind of more there on the surface is. is when you, especially when you have somebody in your life who's dealt with so much loss, like he's had to deal with so much loss of really, really close people, it's never too far from the surface. And I think, and I think it's okay to talk about it and to mention it and just have it be another thing that's part of the it's conversation. Okay to talk about. Yeah, it's okay to talk about. But I don't think it's changed my perspective. Anything it makes you want to hold on to people stronger and still let them do what they love to do, because mm-hmm. I don't think you should, you know, cage cage a wild animal like that not to use that metaphor, but, um, you know, I wouldn't want to fundamentally change who somebody is. It definitely is always there sometimes like in the back of the head. I imagine
0: you're open with the fact that you don't want children. Um, I'm almost 42. My wife's, uh, 26, 37. Um, (laughs) and we struggle with the issue and, and I, you know, I've, we always get, um, not offended, but Annoyed when people say, "Well, when are you having kids?" Right. You know, I think it's kind of intrusive and rude. Yeah, um, for a very intimate right. question. Um, is there any reason you don't? It's
1: very kids... also very presumptuous, right? That, like right. you're which you're I guess missing. my question is too. Yeah. But yeah, which you're you're missing. I think right. I'd... Yeah, why aren't you? Yeah, exactly. What's wrong yeah. With you? yeah, exactly. What's wrong with you? Yeah. As opposed to like, well, this is just another way to live. It's when I would tell. So where I work it, as a nurse, you know, I'm surrounded by all these women a lot who have kids, and I love it. For years, they're like, "Oh, when are you gonna have kids?" And I was like, "Well, a, I'm, you know, super single, so that's not gonna happen." Um, this was back then, and um, I'd say, "You know, I don't think I really want them." And the typical response would be like, "Oh, well, it's different with your your kids. You know, you'll 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 love kids when it's like your own kids."
0: Meaning not the kids in the ICU yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. They're like, "Oh, well, it's different when it's your own kids. Like being a parent, you can do it." And it's funny. I would never say the opposite to somebody like who's pregnant like, "Ooh, well, you know, might not turn out well and you might not love that kid or whatever," right? right? Um, I kind of go back and forth, but no, I'm pretty firm. I don't I don't see myself as a mom. <laughs> right. And I could see myself definitely doing um uh, the foster care route um or maybe even like adoption down the road of an older kid cuz I think that's like there's desperate need for Good foster parents and that whole, the whole foster care program, especially in California, is just Fuck. bananas. Yeah, yeah. bananas. Um, and those kids need support. Um, but I, I do. It is kind of a rude question, or the way people approach it. Um, but I try not to be too, you know, too rude back. Right. Or whatever. Yeah.
0: It comes across as a bit rude for sure, but I think it comes from <clears throat> a place of care and love. Ultimately. Right. Totally. And sometimes we can't verbalize our thoughts, you know?
1: Yeah. And I love kids. Like I work with kids. I love kids. I have so many people in my life who have great kids, Um, but I like being the auntie role. I Mm -hmm. think it's fun to like take care of them, spoil them, teach them some bad tricks and give them back. Right.
0: Feed them (laughs) ice cream for breakfast. Yeah, exactly. It's a question I ask everyone because everyone we chat with is so accomplished and so driven in their sport, you know, so to speak. What would you do if you couldn't run and would regular life
1: be enough? Just me. I could, I hike. (laughs) if i couldn't run i'd just probably find some other outdoor activity rollerblading it's making a, a comeback yes <laughs> i would not roller ski i grew up having to do that and that's just the dork that's why people think nordic skiers are dorks as they see them out roller skiing and they're like what uh, i would not do that um i think let's say if i if i had like no physical outlet I think, cause if I think if I like lived in a city, you know, I'd probably run less and maybe do like a little more yoga and maybe go to some of those spinning classes or you know find some other type of thing, uh, some type of other physical exertive outlet. I like being creative, so I think I could tap into the creative part of my brain a little bit more. I mean, I can spend hours and hours. Decorating things with nail polish. I think I could take that to a more advanced, mature level. You know, so you know, artists seem to spend a lot of time just kind of wasting time doing what they love, which is essentially how I feel about running. So I think I could get into some more creative stuff. Mm-hmm. Brush up on that Spanish, right? Yeah.
0: And in in one of the the Jaybird video that highlights you know you personally, um, which again I think is really well done. Um, it's referencing your successive victories at UTMB, which is you know, arguably the toughest hundred miler in the world in 2013 and 14, and you came out of nowhere. Um, You know, and I should preface that by saying, like, when you talk about entering Silver State on a whim, you won, you were like fourth overall, you know, and that just springboarded you and into other successes. But in the video, I found it really intriguing that you pose the question to yourself that, um, could I really find a way to have nothing to lose again? And I thought that was really insightful. Have you been successful in that light?
1: I don't think so. Maybe not yet. No. I think there's like a couple bigger things I want to tackle that scare me a little bit. Um, and will definitely require a lot of prep and follow through and, um, diligence, use that word again. Um, so no, I don't think I have like had that sensation yet. Or um, kind of accomplished that or felt that again. Um, but it's good to have something in the horizon to shoot for.
0: What's been the happiest moment of your life? Ooh.
1: Well, this is like a typical happy moment. My mom and I went hiking the other week on Donner Summit. I mean, she's lived on Donner Summit. And she explores the area, you know, on the regular. But I showed her a all-new trail and like little rock scrambling section that she hadn't been to. And she just thought it was like the coolest so that's like happy, happy moment when you're outside, you know, and you're you're with, you know, a loved one and you see how jazzed they are about something you've shown them. That's pretty mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Right. That's happy moment. Very cool. I like those. Those are like my type of happy moments, mm-hmm.
0: you know, I think, yeah, I think you might have the one of the best all time finish line shots of the curtsy at UTMB. Oh, that must've been pretty happy.
1: <laughs> yeah. That was, although at that point you're so exhausted, Um, and it's just like, you're just so depleted that the emotions are almost dulled in a way or something, or they're not quite as acute as you would think. And like, I don't really remember that at all, um, because you're just so out of it that like, it's like the memory doesn't implant or something because you're not taking anything really in at that moment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I do have some really great memories from that race that race in particular i remember the sunrise over this one pass like going into switzerland was like absolutely gorgeous so i have little glimmers of right. that yeah i'm sure it's super
0: happy dementia or yeah yeah you know? exactly of
1: just not having any mental capacity
0: yeah. and i would imagine in your line of work there's of course i'm sure very trying experiences but probably very rewarding too
1: oh definitely um you know the thing about kids is they're pretty resilient and while we do see a lot of tragic things, you also see a lot of really great things and great recoveries and beauty you know, of life, yeah, things. and surgeries that go well and people are going home with a happy, healthy kid. Those are always great, great right. moments, yeah.
0: Yeah, because yeah. you have to be in a tough way to be in the NICU, right?
1: Yeah, I do pick you, pick you, yeah. So PICU. that's smaller. No, NICUs are the tiny, okay. really tiny ones. I don't do the really, really tiny ones. That kind of scares me. Yeah. Uh, I have such man hands dealing with. That's even tinier than. But we get. Like, um, anything from like newborn, um, as so long as they're not like micro, like too underweight, um, up to 18 years old. So you get quite oh, wow. the span. So it's yeah. pretty cool. And obviously most of the patients we see are more on the younger side, you know, typically like infants and toddlers are the, you know, your bread and butter of a PICU, but we do get older kids
0: too, which I really like. Cause they can talk. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Although sometimes it's nice when they don't talk. <laughs> right. Yeah. Get that yeah. pacifier back like, in your mouth. That goes for
0: adults too, though. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you have any regrets in your life?
1: Oh, sure. I think that thing about like no regrets, I I think it's natural to have regrets and to, to be introspective and to reflect back on experiences and be like, I would have done that differently and learn and grow from that. I think that's good actually to be aware of what you you know could have done better. I mean, in work, I feel that. Um, it's like, I've done things in the past as a nurse where things that I not, not necessarily have done wrong, but could have done better type of thing. And you regret that you didn't do it the best way that first time, but now you've learned. And, um, so I totally believe in regrets. <laughs> I don't think I have any like major, major ones like, you know, Oh, wish I would have, you know, changed my whole career path type mm-hmm. of regrets, which are obviously harder, To deal with. Uh, The biggest regrets I think that would bring me kind of like the most sadness or um, kind of eat more at me would obviously be things on a more personal, like interpersonal relationship wise. You know, like things you said to some. Yeah, exactly. Those are obviously the ones that like uh, pull at the emotions more than other type of life regrets. Biggest thing I've learned from like certain regrets I've had is like be a better friend. Mm -hmm. You know, which is easier said than done.
0: Right. But it's very honorable, too. Yeah. We ask everyone these last two questions, but how would you like to be remembered when it's all said and done? Ooh,
1: I'd like my obituary to read Rory Bozio, aged 114, died in a fencing duel with a jealous ex-lover, aged 45. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, what a way to go out. Uh, you know, it goes back to that thing that... Uh, you know, the golden rule and just being a good person. I just want to be, yeah, I just want to be remembered as being a good person, like somebody who was kind and fun and somebody who other people would want to be around, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, that's pretty much all it is who did, you know, was a good member of society type of thing. It's like, you know, be the kid that your parents were wanting to
0: raise, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, hard. (laughs) But also true. High standards, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. On, wanna... some,
0: on some level, a- yeah. always, right? Yeah,
1: you want to feel like you you gave more than you
0: took from mm-hmm. the world. Right. Yeah. And then lastly, what are you most proud of in your life? Ooh, yeah. I think sometimes it fits into the friendship yeah. part of it. But I love it when people don't say, oh, yeah, my victory here. Or, oh, God, no. I sent this route or...
1: No, I was thinking more, I guess I'm really proud of like, it is, it goes back to like some of the relationships. Uh, few solid relationships that I have in my life that I think I'll have till the end of my life. And having that as such a, you know, like foundation in your life. I'm like the women hap- who went
0: to Corsica with you? Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. I'm really happy to have that. And I feel very loved. Um, and I feel uh, like I have a lot of people in my life that I love. And I mean, at the end of the day, that's all that really, you know, that's all it comes down to. And I think I've tried to improve you know, like relationships with you know family over the years, and I could definitely do a lot better with that. Um, but that's something to strive for. That I'd like to be more proud of in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Oh, it's great. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. your
2: Little
1: setup here.
0: Afterglow is recorded at the Pink Palace Recording Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. Afterglow's production staff is a team of three. Myself, sound engineer Miles Heaps, and producer Kristen Hannah madigan The music of Season 3 of Afterglow is provided by the talented Old String Duo. Make sure to check them out on Instagram to enjoy more of their work. Afterglow is available on any podcast listening platform. If you like what we are doing, Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends. Season 3 of Afterglow continues on Monday, January 6th with rock climbing legend John Long. The musings on life and a retrospective on the Stone Master era by this great personality is not to be missed.